Thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful to see all of you. Uh, very much enjoyed the earlier events. The uh, Rise Up, O People was uh, right about exactly on topic. Um, thank you for inviting me. Thank you to Archer Heinzen and to everyone else uh, involved, to whoever was involved in setting this up. Um, I confess I would not have come if I had known that the UVA basketball team would be playing Villanova at 1 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that uh, must have come totally off. This is fine. Let me just put it here. So I will uh, catch that on the on the radio or the replay without the commercials. But um, when I do watch that game, I can guarantee only this: that the announcer will thank the U.S. troops for watching from 175 countries, and nobody will blink or stop and ask whether 174 might be just about enough. I wish I could also guarantee that UVA will win, but this is where sports monkeys around with rational thought. I don't actually have any say over whether UVA wins, so I can turn my wish into a prediction, we will win, and then declare that we won as if I'd had something to do with it. Or let's say that UVA blows it, then I can remark that we decided to keep London Parentes in the game with a broken hand and the flu and having just lost a leg in a car wreck and so forth, even though I wouldn't actually do that sort of thing. Just as if I fully controlled the U.S. government, I wouldn't actually spend a trillion dollars a year on preparing for more wars. Nothing anyone can say about sports can possibly be as dumb as how people use sports-like language to talk about politics. If you protest a war and the U.S. military starts it anyway, please do not say we just started a war. We didn't. Perhaps somebody did it with money you paid in taxes. Perhaps you have a responsibility to persuade the House of Misrepresentatives to end the war. But your we doesn't just distinguish you from people outside of that responsibility. It distinguishes you from people being bombed and from people throughout the non-US 96% of humanity who are part of our peace movement. We, the peace movement, succeed or fail at stopping wars, and we don't have a nationality. We are also not the Democratic or Republican Party. We don't need to take back the government from one party for the other because we never had it. And only a movement unwilling to dream, to say as we just did, make tomorrow better, requires that everything be a retaking or a taking back or a making great again. So we don't need to decide which party or which personality is evil and declare the other one saintly. We should be able to denounce a president who threatens war with China and praise a president who proposes peace with Russia, even if it's the same president. And even if the good moves are for bad reasons. And even if the vast majority of his actions all fall on one side of our ledger, even if we're already hoping he's reelected or busy trying to get him impeached. Yeah, that latter one would be me. Um, Tip, Tip O'Neill, by the way, once masterminded an impeachment process. We heard some other good words about him earlier. Uh, we should denounce the best politicians when they do wrong and praise the very worst when they do right, which sounds deranged for a friendship, but it's appropriate for representative government, which should have nothing to do with imaginary friendships. 
So, fair warning, if I criticize an action by a member of one party, it is not because I adore or obey the other party. Politics is not watching a basketball game. In politics, you're supposed to actually be on the court. The accuracy of what you predict is supposed to be impacted by what you do. A couple of weeks ago, many of us were demanding that President Obama give Chelsea Manning clemency. The usual prediction was that it wouldn't ever happen. Then it happened, and the usual analysis was, well, of course it happened. <laughs> but we weren't making a prediction, we were making a demand. And we made many others that failed. Many whistleblowers are still in cages or otherwise suffering. The fact that Obama did something right doesn't change the fact that he helped lock Manning up in the first place. The question of whether he did more harm than good is not, I think, that difficult to answer, but I think misguided to ask. So I'm going to talk a bit about where we are, and then where I'd like to be, and then how to get there. So I hope to move from the bad to the good to the energizing and fulfilling. The general trend of the US government is from bad to worse to miserable. And it proceeds along that course fairly steadily. Obama set records for military spending. He dropped more bombs on Iraq than Bush had. He created drone wars. He ended the idea that presidents need Congress for wars. He put more troops in more countries. He massively escalated the still going war on Afghanistan. He bombed eight countries and bragged about it. He firmly established warrantless spying, baseless imprisonment, torture and assassination as policy choices rather than crimes. He wrote secret and public so-called laws that his successor is picking and choosing from without input from the legislature. He created a new Cold War with Russia, and he did these things sometimes willingly, sometimes permitting his subordinates to do them. And here comes Trump saying he'll torture, saying he'll steal oil, saying he'll kill families, and stepping into more power than any human being has ever held before, and as ill-prepared perhaps as any human being ever to have reached the age of 70, to use that power. As Barack Obama and John McCain pretended to ban torture, which had long since been a felony, Trump will pretend to unban it. And many would be shocked if they discovered that none of this can legally be done, which means that, in fact, it can effectively be done. Many would be shocked to learn that Trump and his subordinates target numerous people with missiles from flying robots. Most of those people not identified, none of them indicted, few if any of them proven unavailable to arrest, and not a one of them a continuing and imminent threat to the United States of America. And by the way, when something is imminent, it isn't continuing. I deeply hope that people are so shocked and that they grow outraged, even if I might have preferred that they had done so when Obama created this policy. By the way, I highly recommend seeing a movie called National Bird. Has anybody seen this? Ray McGovern. Uh, welcome, Ray McGovern, everybody, a, a peace activist uh, we should all look up to. Um, National Bird dramatizes the one transcript we have of drone pilots talking prior to, during, and after blowing a bunch of people up halfway around the globe. And you can also just go read the transcript, thanks to the ACLU. It is the opposite of humanitarian soldiers doing the tough job that needs to be done of protecting our bank accounts and laptops. It is vicious, bloodthirsty, eager sadism on display. It is not what most groups will choose to view on Patriotism Day. 
Did you know that Donald Trump wants to create a new holiday called Patriotism Day? I, I have not heard when it will be, but I think we should have a peace day on that day instead. Uh, as you may have gathered, I'm going to touch on a lot of topics, and I hope to have lots of time for trying to answer questions about the ones that interest you. Some are topics I could go on for days about. Others are topics I'm just pretending to have some sort of clue about. So watch out for fake news. I, I am mostly kidding. But I will go ahead and try to answer the question of how does one distinguish real from fake news? I think the best thing you can do is go to the source. If I describe a movie that dramatizes a transcript, don't believe me and don't believe the movie. Go read the transcript or the key little bit of the transcript. If the New York Times reports that a so-called intelligence, so-called community, so-called assessment on Russian hacking is damning, but then reports later in the article that the government report didn't contain any actual evidence, don't pull your hair out. Don't be reading that article in the first place. Read the report itself. It is no lengthier or harder to find. And you can tell in two minutes that it doesn't even pretend to contain any evidence. Do not listen to how someone is paid to describe a police killing. Watch the YouTube. Don't turn on CNN to find out what executive order the executive has just ordered. Read it on the White House website. Going to the source is not a complete answer. You also have to read multiple sources, and you have to determine the relative credibility of them, even when they're far away and in other languages. But to the extent possible, go to the source and be your own judge. I think my articles have appeared in 11 publications that the Washington Post has suggested are Russian propaganda. Yet. Every article appeared also, and first, on my own website. Everyone was produced by the following method. I sat in front of my computer, I figured out what I thought, and I typed it. Most articles earned me not a dime. None ever earned me a penny from Russia. And most of the publications involved have zero ties to Russia, a government that I often criticize. A Russian Air Force official did once ask me if I would publish stuff he gave me under, his na under my name and I declined publicly on my blog, naming him in the process and denouncing his offer. So I am far from infallible, but if I'm fake Russian news, what do you call the so-called Homeland Security Department lie printed by the Washington Post that Russia hacked Vermont's energy system, a claim immediately rejected by Vermont's energy system? And what should we make of the fact that the owner of the Washington Post is paid a lot more money by the CIA than he earns from the Washington Post, a fact never reported in Washington Post articles about the CIA. Earlier this week, the New York Times, for the first time in my memory, called a presidential lie a lie. National Public Radio immediately announced that as a matter of principle, it would never do that. In contrast, I have written a book that is a collection of presidential lies called War is a Lie. So what's fake and what's news? The world reaction to Donald Trump, like the domestic reaction, is very mixed. Believe it or not, some are encouraged that the US push toward war with Russia may ease off. The United States and Russia each possess enough nuclear weapons to destroy all life on Earth many times over. Pentagon officials have told journalists that the Cold War with Russia is for profit and bureaucracy. When there was danger of peace breaking out in Syria some months back, the US military acted to prevent it 
by bombing Syrian troops, apparently against the will of President Obama. The U.S. facilitated a coup in Ukraine, characterized a secession vote in Crimea as an invasion and seizure by force, though never pro proposing a revote, made unsubstantiated claims about the shooting down of an airplane, opened a missile base in Romania, started building a missile base in Poland, moved more troops and equipment to Eastern Europe than seen since World War II, dropped all pretense that the enemy provoking these measures was Iran, and spread the word through endless repetition that Russia was threatening Europe, even though Russia, for all its crimes and offenses, including bombing Syria, was not threatening Europe. The U.S. so-called intelligence, so-called community, put out the word that Russia had hacked Vermont's electricity grid, a story it apparently had simply made up. It may have been the same people who first claimed Trump had a computer server tied to a Russian bank. There was no evidence. The media began running with stories that C-SPAN and other channels had been hacked by Russia. There was no evidence. C-SPAN said Russia didn't do it. Someone other than Russia had made Russian TV content air on C-SPAN. The so-called intelligence, so-called services, put out a series of evidence-free reports and stories that convinced many Americans that Vladimir Putin had broken into U.S. election machines. The reports attempted to imply, without actually claiming, the possession of evidence that Russia hacked into Democrats' emails and gave them to WikiLeaks. Attempts at evidence of the first half of that fell wildly short, and the second half was not even attempted. Yet over half of Democrats told pollsters they believed Russia hacked actual vote counts, something not even claimed. Things in those reports that could be checked independently tended to be false. ISPs identified as Russian were not Russian. When the reports were augmented with available information about a Russian television network, many of the details were stupidly screwed up, suggesting a serious lack of concern for accuracy. When Donald Trump suggested evidence should be required before believing the CIA, out popped an unverified story of a Trump sex scandal and corruption. To my mind, the above incidents suggest a death wish, an inclination towards species side. It should not be equated with simply opposing Donald Trump, though. I think the media's willingness to hand Trump billions of dollars worth of free airtime and consequently the White House as well as the FBI director's possible support for Trump come from a similar inclination. But the deep state would attack its own mother if she opposed the selection of an enemy like Russia, and with it weapon sales and global dominance. Do so at your own risk, fail to do so at the risk of our future. Many others around the world, and many of the same people around the world, are of course horrified at the Trump presidency. They see a pro-war, anti-environment, anti-voting, xenophobic, racist, anti-intellectual, bigot with corrupting business interests, and they're not wrong. The Russian media is condemned for cheering for Trump as if the British media wouldn't have cheered for Hillary Clinton. There may be advantages to Trump's unpopularity. U.S. military bases around the globe create resentment and hostility and facilitate wars. If we were to close them, we would be safer, save billions of dollars, and save a chunk of our atmosphere. One way to close them might be to point out to their hosts that they represent subservience to the odious Donald Trump and the real risk of being developed into secret torture prisons. The world needs to see our support for such resistance. It needs to see our support for diplomacy with Russia and nuclear disarmament. It needs to see our resistance to bigotry 
and our love and acceptance of refugees and foreigners. We need to build, and people are building, unified movements at the local, state, and global levels to protect the rights of all of us, immigrants, refugees, minorities, women, children, Muslims, gays, black lives, Latinos, everyone. But that everyone has to be a very different everyone from the 4% of humanity that it usually means, the 4% within the borders of the United States, perhaps the walls of the United States. Hillary Clinton told a room full of Goldman Sachs bankers that creating a no-fly zone in Syria would require killing lots of Syrians. And she told the public she wanted to create a no-fly zone in Syria. And if she had been declared the winner of the election, I can guarantee you that nobody would have been, as they were this time, marching up and down my street yelling, love, not hate. So I worry that even those who value kindness to others value it mostly for the 4% of humanity in the United States, not so much for the other 96%, or value it as directed by the less hateful of the two big political parties. That is not how we will succeed. And it's not what we saw on display yesterday, which was highly encouraging. I think caring about refugees from countries the United States is bombing is just one step removed from wanting to stop bombing them. And we have had successes, including in the courts yesterday, and holding off a war on Iran time and again. Those are successes. Stopping a massive bombing of Syria in 2013 was a major success. It was incomplete, of course. Positive steps did not replace negative ones, but it showed our potential. And by our, I mean we around the world who did it, including prominently the British public that persuaded the parliament to vote no. In Congress, the, the reluctance to vote for a big visible war on Syria as opposed to a creeping and outsourced escalation was explicitly driven by the fear of voting for another Iraq. That was the result of a decade of activism against the war on Iraq. But the war on Iraq rages on today, and we aren't shown much about the dead men, women, and children in Mosul that the Iraqi and US forces kill. We're shown those killed by ISIS or Assad. So we have to actively search out the news. President Trump went to the CIA on day one and said the US should have stolen, whatever that means, Iraq's oil, all of it, and might have another chance to do so. Good liberal critics said this was absurd because the US was now fighting in Iraq on the side of Iraq, not against it. But have the Iraqi people been polled on that question? Hasn't that been claimed for over a decade now? Is the continued war making benefiting Iraq and the region? We think of Western Asia as inherently violent, but outside of Israel, does it make any weapons? The United States is the top supplier of weapons to the Middle East and set records at it under President Obama. Most other weapons in the world come from the US and five other countries. None of the wars are in places that make the weapons. Remember, it was a company from Manassas, Virginia that provided Saddam Hussein with the materials for anthrax. Remember that the US justified an operation that killed over a million of his people with the statement that he had been killing his own people, generally taken to be a much more horrible sin than killing someone else's people. And now the Iraqi government is killing its own people, and we're told instead that it's liberating cities, as well as liberating fighters to run off and help overthrow the government of Syria. Remember in 2003, when a room full of corporate hacks U.S. corporate hacks in Baghdad was making up new laws for Iraq 
and the Iraqis seemed ungrateful about that. During the past week in Washington, D.C., I think a lot of people have gotten a sense of how they felt. Syrians would feel the same way. But Trump says he's against war and he's for war. What are we to make of the things he says? Well, he says he's for more military spending, and that leads to more wars. He said he was against NATO until he got the slightest resistance. He said he was against the F-35 until the military and Lockheed Martin had a little talk with him. So opposing war making should be the order of the day, including ending several current wars, pulling troops out of numerous nations and closing bases. But not only are people in the United States being hit with other types of crises, but the wars have gone secret. They're outsourced, they're privatized, they're waged from the air more than the ground which can mean more dying rather than less, but it means less dying of the type we're told about and told to care about. U.S. newspapers will still tell you that the U.S. Civil War has been the deadliest of U.S. wars, exactly as if Native Americans and Filipinos and Vietnamese and Iraqis and everybody else just doesn't exist. The risk of nuclear war grows every moment that we don't disarm the world of nuclear weapons. Even the so-called intelligence community's generally bonkers vision of the future recently published predicts nukes being used. A nuclear war is not one that can be criticized after it starts on the grounds that it costs too much money or it hurts someone sympathetic or the people being nuked aren't grateful enough. It has to be stopped beforehand. Preventing war is not something you can do in a purely local way. We may be able to stop all the pipelines through not-in-my-backyard activism by people who generally favor pollution and choose to disbelieve in climate change. We can't end war that way. It requires abstract thought. It requires caring about someone other than yourself, which is quite common and we saw on display yesterday, so this is not an impossible feat. It requires either so-called humanizing possible victims by getting people from each targeted country into Hollywood movies or recognizing that all humans are human whether or not they've been humanized. A wonderful development in itself and something to be built on is the growing support for refugees and immigrants that we've been seeing at airports and elsewhere. What if the people of the United States were to develop the conscience and the consciousness to not just protect refugees, but to stop destroying the places they come from. But to imagine that ending war making and war preparation is not in everyone's considered interest would be absurd. Nothing degrades our culture more than war. It is the most immoral and evil thing that people set out conscientiously to do. It sanctions murder and its supporters ask very reasonably why they can't torture if murder is acceptable. War's only close competitor is environmental destruction, and militarism is the leading cause of environmental destruction. The 400,000 or so people buried in Arlington National Cemetery looks like an immense number, row after row, but war kills in the millions, and it wounds many more than it kills, and it kills aggressor wealthy armies primarily through suicide, and it traumatizes many more than it injures. It spreads disease, it destroys infrastructure, it destroys soil and seas, it does damage through the testing of weapons that rivals what it does through war itself, not counting the testing of weapons as a sometimes motivation for wars. 
It teaches us that violence solves problems. It brings violence to the societies where it's waged and to those distant lands attacking them. It does so through culture and directly. Discussions of how to reduce violence by returning veterans somehow never seem to come around to the option of ceasing to produce more veterans. I saw a video from 10 days ago now in Washington, D.C. of an activist punching a white supremacist in the face. Did anybody see this? Yeah. I think the idea that you're going to defeat fascism by punching fascists makes about as much sense as the idea that you can stop terrorism by terrorizing people. Then I saw a graphic on social media with an image of a villain from a Star Wars movie and the question, is it okay to punch a Sith? And this produced all kinds of laughter. But it isn't really very funny that people imagine the real world to resemble movies in which torture works and murder makes people happy and blowing things up solves problems. I mean, watch that stuff if you're able to distinguish it from reality. Just like you should watch basketball if you can refrain from treating the Pentagon like a sports team and drink alcohol if you can do it in moderation. And when MSNBC presents international events as if they were a Star Wars movie, make sure that you know better. War and war preparations endanger us. They do not make us safe. They lead to war, not away from it. The rise of anti-US terrorists rather than anti-Dutch or anti-Canadian or anti-Japanese terrorists had nothing whatsoever to do with civil liberties in the United States. Nobody is threatening to take over the US government and reduce our liberties, other than presidential candidates. On the contrary, our liberties are reduced in the name of all the wars for liberty. Canada, which just for the umpteenth time in the history of this nation, you know, Robin Williams said Canada was a nice apartment over a meth lab. The, the history of Canada is of rescuing our conscientious objectors and our slaves and our enemies and refugees. Once again, they've said we will take all the refugees turned out by the United States. Imagine what Canada would have to do to reverse course and generate anti-Canadian terrorist groups on a US scale. A clue can perhaps be found in the statement made by, as far as I know, every single anti-US foreign terrorist who has made any statement, namely that the attacks are blowback for US war making in other people's countries. Knowing what Canada would have to do ought to inform us of what the US could stop doing if it chose to break out of the vicious cycle that justifies more violence to counter the blowback from the previous violence. Speaking of the erosion of liberties, we have groups like the ACLU and CARE that resist those symptoms without resisting the disease of nationalism, excuse me, of militarism. I, I lump the two together quite uh, purposely sometimes. In fact, both of those groups this past month, ACLU and CARE, put out fundraiser emails over the signature of a Muslim gold star father from Charlottesville that claimed that the war on Iraq had been for the purpose of upholding the Bill of Rights. Now that's not just false, it's the opposite of the truth and counterproductive to the mission of maintaining freedoms. Opposing war ought to be the top priority of groups interested in human rights. War also impoverishes those who invest in it. 
That can be very hard to, to see, perhaps especially in this part of the United States where you can hardly spit without hitting a military contractor, on, on whom we should not spit, by the way. But the studies are clear that the same dollars put into peaceful industries, or even never taxed in the first place, would produce more jobs and better paying jobs. So military jobs are real, and a just transition would take care of everyone who has one, but they're also a mirage. A transition to a peaceful economy ought to be a priority of everyone who has a military job. It also ought to be a priority of everyone who'd like to see funding for worker training, for schools, for trains, for sustainable energy, for parks, for anything useful in the world. The United States could make itself the most loved nation on earth by giving in aid a small fraction of what it now spends on confronting the rest of the world with weapons. The United States has no friends or allies. It spies on every single other government on earth, and it implants means of causing catastrophes into the infrastructure of allied governments in case they ever become enemies. And why wouldn't they? For a fraction of what the U.S. spends on militarism, we could end starvation and various diseases on earth. We could have top quality education from preschool through college, sustainable energy, sustainable agriculture, trains that get you across the country faster than Fox News switches its position on Julian Assange. I, I won't list health care because the U.S. spends far more already on health care than it needs to. It's just wasted on insurance companies. But we could have the best of everything. We could actually make the whole world great. Not again, but for the first time. The only difficulty would be what to do with all the remaining money and with the attitudes of materialism that assume we need to do something with it. So if you want free college instead of student debt, if you want to avoid nuclear apocalypse, if you want the right to a jury trial, if you'd like to visit other countries and be loved rather than resented, then you do have an interest. You have lots of interests in ending war. Ending war should be the top priority of many movements. And it should be an integral part of movements to protect war refugees, to reduce the racism that is fueled by war and which fuels war, and to halt the militarization of police. Instead, we have a lot of coalitions of all things progressive except peace. Our job of making those coalitions broader, of suggesting that Libyan lives and Yemeni lives and Filipino lives matter, is perhaps advanced by painting a picture of where we might get the vision that we at an organization I work for called World Beyond War have published as a global security system on alternative to war is not one only of resistance. Once you're willing to take on the trillion dollar illness that many have adjusted to, all sorts of opportunities open up for the rule of law, for aid, for diplomacy, for restorative justice, for cooperation, for conflict resolution, and of course, for what to do with some of that trillion dollars a year. People sometimes get outraged at the hoarding of wealth by billionaires, and I really wish more people would. But their pile of gold is nothing compared to what gets dumped into war year after year after year. About $2 trillion globally, about $1 trillion in the United States alone. Several trillion dollars in destruction by war and additional trillions in lost opportunities from not putting those funds to better use. If anyone ever tells you there's not enough money for something, they are either mistaken or lying.
but they are certainly giving you the fakest of fake news. Of course, the main problem is that most people in the United States who don't want as much war as possible don't want to abolish all war either. They want to do away with the bad wars, but keep the good wars. A standard not typically applied to other horrors such as rape or child abuse or racism or slavery or various past horrors once treated as natural and inevitable such as dueling or trial by ordeal or lynching. There are not actually any good wars, which is why my books focus on World War II, the Civil War, and others masquerading as good wars. I, I have written here in my remarks, which I'm coming to the end of, I will make a firm prediction that I won't get past three questions from you guys without one of them being about World War II. I retract that. I was asked about it prior to making my way up here. Uh, so if you, if you don't mind, I will slip in the five-minute version here of why World War II is not a necessary good, just war. Uh, let's begin with the fact that the world was very, very different 75 years ago. So if you're going to justify the single biggest expense of our society next year and the year after, spending our grandchildren's unearned pay. And the most recent example you can find to justify it comes from a world of a completely different political and historical and uh, a system of, that you know knew almost nothing about the power of nonviolence, that didn't have nuclear weapons, that it had completely different racial and sexual relations and systems of education. I mean, we don't go back 75 years to find the most recent justification for much more minor enterprises than the single biggest thing we do uh, as a people. And, and World War II was not, I'm sorry to you know, break this to you if you haven't heard, it was not a surprise to the US government. And it was intentionally provoked uh, with Japan uh, following a commitment to do that to Winston Churchill uh, as a means of getting into both so-called theaters of the war. It also wasn't defensive on the part of the United States. Uh, you know, when we watch movies about Anne Frank, we feel very self-righteous, you know, but her visa was turned down by the U.S. State Department. And there were resistors to that sort of bigotry back then, but they were in a distinct minority. There wasn't enough of what we saw at airports yesterday. Most people in the United States wanted nothing to do with rescuing any Jewish children or any other Jewish refugees. And they had a ship chased away from Miami by the Coast Guard. Uh, President Roosevelt saw to it that efforts, you know, lists of families willing to take them and senators willing to help, Franklin Roosevelt saw to it that that never made it through Congress. Uh, and, and so this idea that World War II is justified by how evil one side was, uh, and it was justified by as an effort to save the Jews. No, it was the peace activists going to Roosevelt and going to Churchill and going to his foreign secretary, Ethan Adams, and saying, take the Jews out. Because this had been the insane, bigoted campaign of the Nazis for years, was to export all the Jews to somewhere else in the world. And there were meetings of Western governments where they all decided nobody should take them. And after the British had evacuated thousands and thousands of their troops and shown what they were capable of, and peace activists went to the British government, to the prime minister, and said, take the Jews out. 
the response was, eh, too much trouble, can't be bothered. Right? So there, there was never any military or legal uh, or diplomatic effort. You know, the, the, the idea that World War II had something to do with saving the Jews was, was created after World War II. Uh, you know, then the idea that the U.S. wasn't just jumping into a war for others, but actually defending itself was generated by typical lies. I mean, Roosevelt borrowed Wilson's lies from the past, from the previous war, and invented Nazi plans to slice up South America and eliminate religion and pretended Nazi attacks on ships were on innocent ships when they were on ships helping British planes just like, uh, in World War One and so forth. So, um, I also think it's interesting that we so lament the deaths of usually it's six million, more accurately nine million people murdered in camps, but not some 60 million murdered outside of those camps. Right? When you, use, when you think of war as a cure for an illness, but it kills 10 times the number of people as the illness, you've got, you've got your priorities mixed up a little bit. And it, but you, I mean, World War II is the myth of the founding of the United States, right? And it is, it is so enriched by so many tales of good versus evil. While the United States was up to during and through World War II, experimenting on human beings, you know, giving, giving syphilis to unwitting victims in Guatemala during the Nuremberg trials of all sorts of chutzpah, uh, the United States was building a military empire. It was, a, it was an apartheid state for African Americans. It was a state that locked up the Japanese in a manner that had to later be apologized for and reparations paid uh, until you got a new fascist-leaning government in Washington, D.C., and people talking about using that as a president. Uh, so the, the good versus evil contrast is wildly overblown. Uh, and, well, I, I can, you know, I can do hours on, on World War II, and I expect I, I will uh, when asked, but uh, let me just wrap this up by saying you do not have to agree with me that we can end or we should end uh, all war in order to agree to taking positive steps that I believe will eventually eliminate all war. You can believe in militarized defense and still abolish weapons that have no defensive purpose, and still scale the United States military back to something remotely resembling those of other countries. And that would launch a reverse arms race of a sort we've never seen, and further demilitarization would follow more easily. This past year, I wrote a book called War is Never Just, refuting the claims of just war theory. Just war theory's criteria for a just war fall into three categories in my book the impossible, the immeasurable, and the amoral. It is a medieval doctrine that the Catholic Church is rejecting, but U.S. universities have entrenched more deeply than evolution or climate science. The Pope is ahead of the professors on this one. But there is evil in the world, someone will shout. We must use the most evil acts possible to spread unending cycles of evil in order to address the evil in the world. I suspect I could find well over 100 million Christians in the United States who would not hate the men who crucified Jesus Christ, but who do hate and would be highly offended at the idea of forgiving Adolf Hitler or ISIS. 
When John Kerry says that Bashar al-Assad is Hitler, does that help you feel forgiving toward Assad? When Hillary Clinton says that Vladimir Putin is Hitler, does that help you relate to Putin as a human being? When ISIS cuts a white English-speaking man's throat with a knife, does your culture expect of you forgiveness or vengeance? What good would forgiveness do? Well, I don't know. I'm not a Christian. You guys are. But I suspect that it might allow clear thinking. People keep retiring from the U.S. military and blurting out that the wars are counterproductive. Every war produces more terrorist groups. Every attack on them spreads their violent ideology farther. At some point, the choices of doing what makes matters worse and doing nothing start to seem like they might not be the only two choices. Disarmament, targeted sanctions, halting support, using diplomacy, providing aid begin to come into focus as options that were there all along. Toward developing this vision, World Beyond War is building a nonviolent global movement focused on education and activism. The sign-up sheets that I have here, and I like to pass around, these uh, sign-up sheets have a very short statement that says, I'd like to end all war, that has been signed so far by people in 147 countries and growing. You can form a World Beyond War chapter. We have materials for events on the website, books, films, PowerPoints, speakers, activities. We have a campaign focused on divestment of public dollars. Does Arlington have government pension funds invested in weapons dealers? You may know, but if you don't, it can be found out. Teachers' retirements should not depend on a boom in the war business. We have another campaign focused on closing bases, working with groups around the world, resisting foreign, meaning U.S., bases in their areas. The mayor of the town in Okinawa, where the U.S. wants a new base, will be in D.C. this Tuesday evening. If you want to meet with him, uh, talk with me afterwards. And we have another campaign focused on advancing the rule of law. You can help us with these or give us other ideas. Our website, worldbeyondwar.org, argues the case against war, and you can use it to educate others. It also has a calendar of upcoming events around the world. But being here in this area, I would say start by getting active at Dulles Airport and wherever the action is in this area, and going with groups like Code Pink to congressional hearings and blurting out some words of truth in them. In March, a meeting is opening at the UN in New York on a new treaty to ban nuclear weapons. From the end of March through the first week of April, we're encouraging people to hold events everywhere. April 4th is 50 years since Dr. King's speech against war. And I understand your church is turning uh, 50 not that long after as well. Congratulations. And April 6th is 100 years since the United States got into a war supposedly to end all wars. Toward the end of April, there will be coalition protests in DC that will need peace added to them. In June, the United National Anti-War Coalition, UNAC, will have its conference in Richmond, Virginia. So I recommend organizing locally here and globally through World Beyond War. Every town needs peace holidays and monuments and events to counter the war ones. Every locality needs commitments to sanctuary, to safe cities, to refusal to cooperate in official bigotry, including in attacks on people who live far away from the United States. Those people are part of us too. They are our neighbors' families now blocked from visiting. They are witnesses to war who can teach us not to make more wars. 
They are our allies who can move the United Nations and the war-making and weapons-buying nations of the world. And Shelley said this, and these words shall then become like oppression's thundered doom ringing through each heart and brain heard again, again, again rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number, shake your chains to earth like dew which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. Thank you.